Thanks for tuning into the Replatform podcast sponsored by Ampliance, an API first uh, headless CMS and DAM in one, and Clavio, an email and SMS marketing automation platform. You're listening to me, James Gerd, and the exciting tones of my co host, Paul Rogers. How are you today, sir? I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah. How was your weekend? Was it fun? Uh, yeah, it's good. I didn't do too much. Um, I went, we had our Christmas party on Thursday, so it took me like 48 hours to recover from that. Um, but yeah, it's still good. What about yours? You're not even in your 40s yet, mate. You should be uh, recovering quicker than that. Um, yeah, it was fun. I had a long weekend of my daughter doing dance um, performances Saturday, Sunday, so I'm mildly broken, but um, it's all good. Um, hello to our regular listeners. Thanks for tuning back in. Warm welcome if you're listening to us for the first time. We hope you'll enjoy it. Do subscribe to get episode alerts. We drop a new one every week and we'd love a like uh, and a rating on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, etc. Right, that's our sales shtick. Let's move on to the topic. So very exciting topic today. And uh, it's it's how Black-owned business is transforming online hair care for Black people. So we think this is really important. It's a couple of strands we're going to cover today. So we're going to look at the importance of Black-owned e-commerce businesses, what diversity means for brands, and how to launch lean and grow a new e-commerce business from the ground up. So let's welcome my wonderful guest. Uh, Luke, how are you, sir? I'm really good, gents. Really, really good. Um, yeah, can't wait to get stuck into this one, actually. It's an incredible topic. So, but yeah, I'm happy, man. Yeah, it is. And Luke, we were discussing this before we started recording. Luke is the first person to have done two podcast episodes with us. So he's pioneering the future of replatform today. Um, and uh, Luke, I'll let you give you uh, give a bit of an introduction for those who might not have heard of you before. So can you just talk a bit about who, who you are and what you do? And then um, let listeners know, you know, what is Afrodrops? And then we'll, we'll go into asking all of our usual annoying questions. Yeah, no problem. So, uh, yeah, my name is Luke Carthy. I am an e-commerce consultant um, by day. Um, and ultimately, I just specialise in growth, conversion and scaling uh, for, for e-commerce brands. So what better way uh, to do that than to, to start my own passion project? And that was really what Afrodrops was was born from. Um, well, twofold, actually, uh, to jump into it. One was, of course, I'm an e-commerce consultant. You know, you've got to uh, put your money where your mouth is uh, and be able to grow a brand if that's what you're, you're being paid to, to preach. Um, and additionally, it was born uh, from the lack of accessibility of hair care in supermarkets, predominantly um, where I live in, in Birmingham, but it's, it's a national issue. It's an international issue. We've got US suppliers and we've had many great conversations in the world of, of hair care from many different perspectives. But um, long story short, it really kind of manifested itself for me when my, uh, my son um, had his first day at school. He's now eight. And he spent a week or so at school, came home in floods of tears, and he was like, right, well, yeah, ask him, what's the matter? What's, what's, what's going on? Why are you so upset? Um, and assuming it would just be the pressures of school, you know, a new environment, lots of kids. And he said, um, I don't like my hair. And I was like, okay, so how do you react to that? And it's, there's a couple of things, right? So you've got to try and keep a level head and not get emotional at this point. Um, so, yeah, well, what's, well, why don't you like your hair? Um, and he says, it's, it's just not like anybody else's. I don't know the way it grows. Um, I, I, just, I just don't like it. So once I started to understand why, it was of no fault of the school. So I don't want to you know, put anything out there to say the school were great. But it was the fact that he felt a lack of um, seeing himself. Like he didn't feel represented in that kind of space. So a lot of the kids, the girls and boys, uh, straight European hair, styling their hair on the first week of school as, as apparently seven-year-olds or six-year-olds do now. Um, you know, getting into all that styling stuff. And I guess my son couldn't relate 
and as a result, he felt really alienated uh, and he came home and he just wasn't happy. So he wanted to take all his hair off and go to the barbers and get it put off. And I thought, you know what? I've got to let him. I can't tell him he can't. He's, you know, it's, it's up to him, nothing too short. Um, but that made me realise that when you think about the media, when you think about the supermarket aisles, the magazines, um, we depict that a, a certain beauty standard and it never really resonates with any form of curly hair, whether that's Afro hair, um, whether that's... Um, you know, curly or mixed race hair in the case with my kids, there is just a stigma and associated beauty standards that just don't exist. And I think that kind of resonates with me because when I was a child, I had exactly the same problems. If I want hair care, uh, if I want applying products that I'd look to look after my hair, I have to go out of my way um, and, and, you know, go to a specialist dedicated shop um, to go and find what I need. And even then the experience is horrendous. You know, a lot of these places, uh, a lot of people are very vigilant. You know, they, they have the, the belief that you're going to steal, the service is terrible, and the people that are selling these products typically don't use the products. So if you ask them for advice, they can't help you. So they see it purely as a business model rather than feeling like, you know, you walk into a salon, you say, look, do things with my hair, what's happening here, I'm going grey or whatever it might be. There is no one in those environments that can help you. So Afro Drops is a brand that exists really uh, to play homage to my to my children, and broader than that, is to make uh, Afrocentric and natural hair care more accessible, and to help people to learn how to better take care of their hair, um, and transition from you know relaxers and, and chemical straighteners into embracing their natural health. Really, so that is an epitome of what Afro Drops is. Great, yeah, it sounds like a really cool business. Um, so, first question: How important is it for your customer that the business is black-owned, and um, and what impact does that have on your kind of credibility and trust as a brand? Yeah, it's it's a, a really interesting one, actually. I think this probably only came about after um, the launch of the business, where I realised it was actually uh, quite important. And I think a lot of the reasons are when we think of a lot of the Afrocentric hair care brands that are around. So there's, there's brands that I'll mention. So Shea Moisture, um, you know, there's Pantene who have a, a gold range, which is, uh, which is black, uh, for black hair. The problem is with these brands is they are predominantly not owned by, by black people. So the challenge there is it feels very much in the situation where people are building things to profiteer from our type of hair rather than someone embracing it because they are off from that experience. So black-owned brands, representation, I think it really kind of kicks off around the kind of George Floyd era uh, and everything that kind of came from the back of that. But I think it just adds credibility because it's so rare. They are There's not many, or at least it's getting better all the time, but you know there weren't many brands probably a handful of years ago that were purely black-owned. Uh, and that's a whole other challenge in itself with access to, to funding and education, everything else. But um, really, from my perspective, it helps to be transparent. And I can say that, look, I'm a man with, with Afro hair. I am black. Um, and I'm providing a service for people who are not just black, but have, uh, you know, naturally curly hair or whatever that might be. So I think it's important. Um, and it's great to have that feeling uh, and sentiment that it's owned by an independent and it's it's bootstrapped by myself rather than a corporation pretended to be something else. Um, so to give you an example of that, sorry, Shea Moisture is a brand that's owned by uh, the Procter & Gamble group. So it's designed for, for natural and Afro hair, but it's owned by Procter & Gamble. And you could argue then that actually they've got 
uh, history of, of Afro-hair oppression and not really understanding it and publishing and pushing to the media that, um, you know, straight European hair is, is the beauty standard. So it just doesn't necessarily fit right. But if someone who lives that life, walks that life and experiences that hair, is able to build a business um, and, and promote that and be black owned, it helps. But to answer the second half of your question in terms of how does it impact things, um, I mean, I won't necessarily say it dramatically impacts conversion, but what it might necessarily do is allow people to invest in the brand. They might decide to buy from me at maybe, you know, 10% more expensive than, say, Amazon, because ethically it might make more sense for them. Or there's the transparency of, of who runs the business behind it. Um, but, yeah, that's how I think it helps. And you've um, you've already touched on this a little bit, but why do you think black people have been so underrepresented in the industry, given how many kind of major or like huge companies there are um, and how much spending power they have? Yeah, so this is a really interesting conversation, actually, that I've had um, with many suppliers and brands and of course experienced. So my one of my first career, uh, careers, um, well, my first step into the career of, of e-commerce was working for a pharmaceutical and healthcare brand, um, which I won't necessarily mention who. But what I will say is we had conversations because it was like, right, okay, we stock lots of different brands from Tresemme to, to more specialist things like Olaplex and, and that sort of thing. Um, and it was never really, you know, there was a huge diversity. It was a purely online playing brand. But when we think about the buying teams, and we think about um, the people who are in those positions of power, they don't necessarily have the perspective or knowledge or understanding as to what Afro hair is and how to care for it. So it's that same kind of situation when you think about, say, a boardroom. You've got people hiring people who look like themselves, right? So um, it's a very similar situation in the world of hair care. If you haven't got anyone in the buying team who's diverse, um, who understands, who is who's appreciative of what other types of hair care are, then people get comfortable. You have the same conversations with the same suppliers, you buy the same products. Um, that's one challenge. And the second challenge is um, just not wanting to understand it, just not wanting to, 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 to buy into it. Now, what I will say is there are definitely brands out there now who are really stepping up their game. Um, so you've got the likes of Superdrug, Boots, uh, and the specialist kind of retailers who are actually are dedicating more of their stores to uh, Afrocentric and, and curly and textured hair, which is which is really, really good to see. But Afro has been around since the beginning of time, right? This is a new thing. So it's great to see now, but for hundreds of years, this wasn't here. Um, and even then, like walking into my local Sainsbury's, for example, there'll be an entire two aisles of, of, health, of, of hair care, but there's probably... I don't know, a metre worth of, of Afrocentric hair care. And you could argue that I'm not particularly in an affluent, um, sorry, I'm not particularly in an in in area that's rich in culture and diversity. However, um, it's not just here. It could be anywhere. You know, I've lived in, in parts of Birmingham where typically there's more black and Asian communities and it can be the same. Um, so I genuinely think it's a lack of understanding. Um, and, and I think that's just bred um, the, the, the kind of, I guess, hurtful bias, if you like, in supermarket shelves and that sort of thing. Um, it's a shame because that then, when you think about, you should be able to just go to a supermarket and buy what you need for your hair, right? I can appreciate if you need something specialist and medicated, you might have to go to a pharmacy or a GP. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about, as a black man, I can't walk into Sainsbury's and just pick up shampoo for my hair. You know, I can go to pets. I mean, there's a better chance of you being able to get shampoo for a dog <laughs> in a supermarket than there is for me to buy it 
stuff on my hair. When you say it like that, it's quite poignant and it, it's yeah. it's offensive. You know, supermarket brands should try better. Yeah, I, I find it really interesting because oftentimes people hide behind the financial imperative. Or oh, you know, the the revenue opportunity is not there. It doesn't. Matter. But actually, the from the data I've seen, the 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 spend power, especially amongst the black female audience, is really really much higher. They typically spend a lot more on these products. So even the financial argument disappears. So then what you're left with is there is there is a bias somewhere and understand that bias is so important. Yeah, it is. And I think, yes, there's there's definitely racial um, information that there's racist tendencies and all that kind of stuff. But I think actually uh, a big part of it is just if you don't have anyone in the business mm. who can appreciate and understand that part of the market, no one's going to buy it. Because what if you buy the wrong products? What if you don't understand the markets? Um, additionally, on top of that as well, just something I recently learned in the industry is there's a lot of monopoly um, in the world of, of Afro hair care. So um, I don't, in the early 1950s, 60s, I think, don't quote me on the year, but there was a Pakistani family um, who came to the UK and they set up a, a wholesale and a distribution network for the world of, of Afrocentric hair care. Now, back then, there was monopoly rights on some of the brands that could be imported, and they, those monopoly uh, rights are still intact today, which is crazy. So as a result of that, when you think about supermarkets trying to stock these products, they can't just call their Procter & Gamble um, you know, account manager or, or reseller network. They have to be in a situation where they have to go through this almost fractured and, and old school way of making a purchase. So if it's not available through your typical streams, again, that's another reason why. But that in itself is an entire problem. Um, so there's a lot of reasons as to why. And there's, you know, there's lots of new emerging black-owned brands. There's lots of independent um, brands that are coming through now that are great and it's beautiful to see. But it's just crazy that still in, in the year 2022, there's still a disparity between accessibility to hair care for different kind of hair types. Um, and yeah, but I, I, I hear you. There's there's a lot of different um, fragments that that ultimately influence what's going on. Yeah, I, I find it interesting. Well, I, but also, I mean, you talked about some business, some uh, eco, uh, businesses, sorry, that that uh, are making progress there. But large brands like L'Oreal, I know, have champ their championing diversity is a key strategic pillar. So, my question to you is, as somebody who's who, who's obviously a customer, but also a business owner, service in this market, do you see evidence that that product relevance and quality for 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 black shoppers is actually improving from the beauty brands? Or is there a lot of talk about it, but it's not translating uh, into like street level? Yeah, I think it is happening. Um, because if we go back to like Pantene, they've got the Gold Series, um, which is a, a relatively new range in the world of Pantene that's dedicated specifically for textured and curly hair, which is great. But the problem is it stinks of money rather than ethically the right thing to do. So all of this kind of came about because they saw a business opportunity. They saw that there was a, what we call a, a natural Easter movement. So when we think about the, the, the roots of kind of Afro hair care for a second, there is this stigma in, the, in society that straight uh, hair is beautiful. And we think about the workplace where, you know, you'd have black women come into to work in protective styles with their hair just, you know, uh, in an afro or whatever they decided to wear it in and been maybe bullied or discriminated against in the workplace. So black women were forced or felt forced or pressured to either wear wigs or relax and texturize their hair to make it seem more European. So what's happened in more recent years in the last decade or so is there's been a, a, a really big positive shift towards um, black women and black men embracing their natural curl pattern, their natural texture. Now, as a result of that, 
um, there's been a huge boom in the amount of products that are available for maintaining their natural hair type. As a result, these brands like L'Oreal, Procter & Gamble, Pantene, and Tresemme have started to introduce more black influencers and make a name more cultural portfolio of products. But the problem is, as I said to you before, black hair has been around for centuries, for years. Hair care has been around since the beginning of time, right? Like, So it feels very coincidental that you've got this boom in uh, black women and men embracing their natural curl pattern and then the diversity and the amount of products available. So, yes, it's great that we've got more accessibility to those products, but it smells very much like a marketing opportunity or, or a business opportunity rather than an ethical responsibility to do it. But it's normally positioned as, as ethically correct yes. rather than... Yes. You know, so that's the challenge. Yeah, and, you know, there there are, I guess, similar parallels in terms of people jumping on bandwagons like greenwashing where they can perceive a financial benefit of having credentials rather than it being driven from a purist point of view but um a question related to this is like if the big brands get this right and they start selling more better products more relevant products and and providing you know support advice guidance education for people do you see this as like a threat to to where you'll go with afro jobs or do you see that as that's just a great thing because it's going to uplift the whole market for you yeah, this is actually, um, I guess, a question I had for myself when I started uh, Afrodrops as, as a project, and I think it would be great. Like, for, to be in a situation, as ridiculous as it sounds, to have a business where the market is so uh, aggressively flooded with all the products that people need at all the touch points. So, yeah, supermarkets, yes, train stations, just like any relatively standard set of toiletries, to the point where everything is so price sensitive that I can't make any money. That for me is a great problem. <laughs> so I appreciate from a business perspective, yeah. that's horrendous. But from a um, from what's what's right, um, that's great. But then if you think about it, you know, we could talk about the we could talk about any form of of, of, of cosmetics. You know, there's always going to be online players um, and people who are selling these you know things uh, online and fear alternative methods. But it is better. But equally, there's always specialist areas that we can move into. So. Yes, there is the run-of-the-mill hair care, um, but then you have particular shampoos, conditioners, treatments for particular hair types, for particular objectives, length, and retention, strength, protein treatments, like there's loads. And to a point that you mentioned earlier, um, yeah, black women typically spend 5x uh, uh, above average um, compared to any other kind of hair type that spend money. And a simple reason is you need a lot more conditioner, you need maybe specialist combs, um, and there's also uh, a real cultural tie-in as well. So it is hair, but hair is also identity. It's it's your personality um, and it's bonding. You know, I love doing my daughter's hair and I've got probably 50 quid's worth of stuff just here, just for my daughter and son's hair. Some of it's because they need it and some of it's because it's just the way that we bond. It's the way we talk, we communicate. It's, it's a hobby. Um, and as a result of that, there's a, there's a duty of care to hair, but then there's also a celebration and a, and a, and a, a collaboration of people when we think about hair care as well. So it's, it's, it goes deeper than just caring for hair itself. Um, but I think Afro drops will always be a thing, but it will probably evolve depending on accessibility of products for sure. Um, so I'll ask the next question, and it's the first one related to kind of technology, I guess. Uh, so you chose WooCommerce for your e-commerce platform. Um, yes. Why did you go down that route instead of maybe one of the SaaS platforms or some of the other platforms on the market? Yeah, so 
I think if I was, if, if Afrodrops was born in a situation where I wasn't in the world that I'm in, in the world of e-commerce and specifically SEO, um, I probably would have gone with a off-the-shelf, you know, Shopify installation because I think about all my competitors, and there are there are loads of them. As much as I've just spoke about um, how there's lack of accessibility, Afrodrops is in no way, you know, one of few. There are hundreds of hundreds of resellers of of, of Afro and natural set, uh, natural hair care, textured hair care, um, but almost all of these brands are built in Shopify, and Shopify has its perks. Of course, if someone's not um, doesn't have the resources or the budgets or the skills to go away and build something from scratch, then th- this is what Shopify is for. But for me, when I think about um, what people are going to be searching for, the products, the challenges that they're trying to, to, to advocate and fix, um, WooCommerce is just better because I can control my fasted navigation. I can choose what's indexed. I can create my robotic text file. I can use Elemental to build, you know, really great landing pages and campaigns. I can control my data. But more importantly, I own everything, which comes with its challenges, of course, because I've got hosting and infrastructure and CDN and all that kind of nonsense. But I own all of it. Um, additionally, Afrodrops was born as a project. So... I wanted to start with as little money as possible on the tech stack and focus as much money as possible on inventory because there is such a richness of products and SKUs that I didn't want to be paying, you know, major retainers to Shopify to all these extensions, all these add-ons when I can just do one-off costs um, on, on, on WooCommerce for that sort of thing. So to really kind of answer and distill the question, um, I have complete flexibility in terms of how things look, URL structures. And from an SEO perspective, I have a competitive edge versus all the competition because they all use and have the same limitations um, of what Shopify has. So shopping experience is great, as we know on Shopify. I'm not going to say it's not. It's brilliant. Um, But from an SEO perspective, at least when I I thought about uh, Afrodrops as a a project um, two years ago, um, WooCommerce if you know what you're doing, can be a heck of a lot stronger from an SEO and organic search perspective. Makes sense. And when it comes to kind of what you launched with, how do you feel about kind of where the site is now? And like, did you, have you kind of developed it a lot since then? And how did you kind of prioritize features when it came to kind of an MVP on that site? Yeah, that's a, a really good question, actually. I think there's, a, there's definitely a lot of learn, a lot of learn, even as a, an e-commerce consultant now. But what I would say is from the tech stack side of things, it's been relatively straightforward because that's where I, I thrive and that's what I do day to day. But where I've really kind of, uh, not going to say struggled, but advanced quite aggressively and learned a heck of a lot about is the product side of things. So... You know, normally the process is when you think about e-commerce, it's very much a case if you buy a thing or you buy a handful of things, whether that belongs to a brand, so I'm a a reseller. So, you know, you might buy um, three or four brands and get every product in those particular brands or collections and just sell those. Um, So you might start with an inventory of, you know, I started with an inventory of, of about 40 SKUs, thinking that if I have every single product in a range, that would be great. The problem is... Um, people in the world of hair care don't necessarily shop like that. They're not specifically brand loyal. They might have a shampoo from uh, As I Am. They might have a conditioner from um, Camille Rose, a leave-in conditioner from Sunny. You know, they, they're just hugely diverse depending on what it is that they want to buy. As a result, we're now in a situation where we are up to um, 
about 350 SKUs now and still growing. So the biggest challenge really was actually getting the right inventory from the off. Uh, and that was the real challenge because we budgeted X for inventory and we had to spend all of our money and resources pretty much on getting stock rather than investing in technology. So what I will say to answer that question is we had to invest in site search a heck of a lot sooner than what we thought we would have to. We had to invest in landing pages and helping people navigate the categories, product recommendations, and just really enhancing how people discover those products because we assumed we'd be starting with 50 or so products and that just wasn't the case. It got very rich, very deep, and lots of products there very quickly. So that was probably the biggest challenge is, um, is making things accessible and easy to find for people. One of the, um, I guess, we, we, you know, our whole approach on this podcast is technology agnostic because there's use cases for every platform. I love hearing the reasons why Woo was a benefit to you. One of the biggest risks, if you flip that, of building your own, even when you experience, is if you take a SaaS theme, you get so much dumpy out of the box, right? And you just go, okay, yes. I don't get the control, but I get the reassurance. So at checkout, I'd love to hear this. How did you go about checkout design payments like payment gateway and making sure pci wasn't an issue for you yeah so the, the yeah the, this is the inverse isn't it i guess you've got you know you go with an out-of-the-box solution you get 85 percent of all the, the gubbins done for you and the downside of that is lack of flex the upside of that is you haven't got to worry about it yeah um so checkout design actually was was really straightforward um and the reason why i say that is not from a place of arrogance but we didn't know where we were starting from so rather than spend all this time doing research on stuff that we haven't we haven't done because we were a brand new uh, startup, is we kept it really clean, really simple, minimalist, um, easy to use. And I actually got some members of my family to just have a poke at the site um, because the, the typical audience for me actually is, is predominantly female, um, but with the age range is quite broad. I've got you know people probably in their fifties and upwards who are buying products, and I've got first time mums who are in their twenties, early thirties, um, and students who are, who are ordering things and bits and pieces as well. So, I guess if it's easy for someone of the older generation to use, then everybody else will breeze through it. But the PCI compliance thing, just to jump on that for a second, the great thing is there's, there's plenty of really good plugins still. So, so Stripe has a really straightforward plugin which takes care of all of that. Um, PayPal, again, exactly the same thing, plugin, and it's also native to WooCommerce anyway. And then we added a new payment solution before anybody else. In fact, we were the world's first black retailer to use this technology, which was fast payments. It was now big, and they're kind of like this viral phenomenon in the world of, of, of payments. They're like the cool hip, um, hipster kind of version of Stripe. But it's incredible, and it's we probably get about on average about 15% of all our revenue through fast and the idea is it's just it's literally one click one one click payments i know paypal have always said they are but when you see fast for the first time it's actually faster than apple pay and google pay um which has its own challenges because if you click the button by accident you end up paying money for something you didn't want um but yeah we kept the checkout design really clean really simple and we just pushed it live um and we put loads of stuff to analyze and test we did we had an A-B testing platform. We had a segmented uh, mouse flow account to be able to see how people move around. Um, we tried varying different trust signals, um, whether it's pay by card or our reviews widget and that sort of stuff. And that really helped us to kind of get something out quick and get it shipped fast and then learn and iterate quick at the same time. What we didn't want to do, what we didn't have time for, and what we didn't have is pools of traffic to be able to say, 
people hate that, people don't like that, that's too big, that's missing. So we just put something out that was basic, that we knew had all the elements, and then we revised and refined and everything else from there. Um, and it, it, took, it was a process, like it was painful. At times it was really buggy. We had situations where at times you had recommendations over the proceed to checkout button, which was infuriating when I found it because people couldn't progress with the checkout. So all of these things are are hideous and they're painful, they're expensive, but it does mean when you get it right, you can build an experience that entirely bespoke for your audience rather than relying on the, 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 the cliche template Shopify experience, yeah. which isn't bad. But one thing I will say that I hate about Shopify is the fact that you have to get aggressively far through the checkout before you get your shipping prices, your delivery prices. Well, for me, because my audience is predominantly UK, I can communicate it as soon as they hit the basket because... I know there's a greater chance that the person's going to be from the UK than anywhere else. And it's a flat rate. So little things like that that I've been able to look at, look at the Shopify experience and tweak and, and, and deal with the FAQs that people have brought in and really adapt the checkout experience to accommodate um, those particular people. Yeah, I think I, I, th- I think Paul would love to have a side conversation with you because he's been doing some, uh, some quite interesting projects with Shopify overcoming some of these some of the standard challenges that people have. So that feels like there's a sub-conversation. It's the SaaS versus open source battle off to the end. <laughs> um, got a sub-question. You've mentioned Fast, and interestingly, we're going to record an episode very soon with Fast, actually. Um, okay. Love to know, have you seen any impact where people who use Fast Checkout, do they repeat order more often? I've asked a few people using Fast, and no one seems to have enough data yet to validate. I'd love to know that. And the other th- bit related to that is, why not just have faster the checkout? So why have two checkouts? So those two bits would be really interesting. Okay, so the, the, that second question is really interesting, actually, because that, um, yeah, okay, I'll add to the first one. So yeah. <laughs> um, do you know what, mate? I'm so, what was the first question again? So the first one is, have you noticed, or is it too early days to right. see people who use fast, do they repeat order more because of the convenience and speed of using it versus people who just do standard checkouts? Well, I, I haven't seen that, but what I will say I've seen is that once people move to fast, so they might the first order they place, they want to stay in their lane or stay in their comfort zone to use PayPal or, or debit credit card. But when people do come back and they use fast, they always use fast. So it's almost like once they've used it for the first time, they're like, oh, that was that's great. I'm happy to use that all the time. But also our implementation of fast is non-standard. Um, and I'll, I'll explain that. So what fast have, have really aggressively advocated is that we add the fast payments button uh, to every PDP, so every product page. Um, and we didn't want to do that because from our very limited test, but from our test, we found that it kind of incentivizes people, or sorry, encourages people to not have a multi-skew uh, basket. It's just check out the item you've got and go ahead. Now, the way that fast works is when you add something to the fast basket, um, you technically add it to the order in WooCommerce. We can see it. And every time you add something to a fast checkout or fast basket, um, it just updates that particular order until you get through the five-minute window and then it consolidates the order and gets it sent to WooCommerce. So my thinking here is the psychology of people is when you see a pay button on the, on the, on the product page, that is pretty final. You've, you want that item specifically, only that item. You can flex the quantity, but that's the only item you're probably going to buy. We didn't want to do that. So we turned fast payments off the PDP and we made sure we only had the fast payments button appear on the basket 
on the basket page because we didn't, you know, we make most of our margin in, in of course, multi-item baskets. AOV is really important to us in a margin-sensitive environment. So we wanted to not, you know, wanted to maximise the opportunity for people to browse, add more things and that sort of stuff. But fast and very, uh, very strong on getting people to just pay on the product page. Now, I think that works really well if you are in a situation where you have a small amount of products. So maybe you're a brand, like a shaving brand, you've got three or four SKUs. Great. But in a in an almost um, miniature marketplace environment, I think it's detrimental. Um, but to answer your second question as to why we have a separate fast uh, checkout, we don't. It's part of the same checkout flow. So it's just like hitting a payment option button and then you go through that process. And uh, yeah, I think, I guess I was devil's advocate. Would you ever be in the position where you'd say, right, just fast is, we'd let everyone check out through fast because do we get better conversion rates? Or as it comes back to the classic, well, actually, you need variety of options for people. Definitely the choice. Like we're even in a situation now where we're thinking about adding international payments was something we were quite um, strong about. So we were thinking about roping in, I don't know if you've heard of Global E before. Yeah. Um, but they're a platform that allows people to pay their native uh, currencies and card types. So weirdly, we have a lot of customers that we did have before things got weird with, with our shipping uh, situation internationally. We had a lot of orders for Iceland, going to Iceland. And I can't for the life of me understand why. I'd love to understand that a little bit more. But there might be Icelandic card types and merchants that they'd be more comfortable paying with rather than just assuming everyone's got a master or visa card. So we're really going to invest in that local checkout experience. Um, but because uh, we've got a number of issues we need to climb through with international shipments going missing, we decided not to do it. Um, but my point is that variety is, is definitely you know key. So if people want to pay by Stripe, if people want to pay by PayPal, fast. We're not confident enough to offer anything like you know um, any cryptocurrency yet, but we want to add as many options as possible um, so people can make that choice. But actually, lastly, on that particular point, I don't know if you've actually seen this, Paul, but if it's more of a question or a rhetorical one, but what I will say is the proceed to checkout button. So on Shopify, you have all of your payment options on the basket page, don't you? So you've got GPay, Apple Pay, Amazon Pay, PayPal, Stripe, and then proceed to checkout almost. Um, well, in almost any other experience I've seen, um, or at least specifically in WooCommerce, you go to checkout um, and then all your payment options are there. So the only things I have on my, I guess to make it clear, the only things I have on my basket page right now is fast checkout and continue to proceed to checkout. Um, so what's really interesting with that is a lot of people have said, well, I want to pay my PayPal. And then they, they just don't see it. And as a result, they assume I don't take PayPal because they're so used to seeing Shopify sites where everything is available on that page before they proceed to checkout. So one thing we're running now, we're running a test literally as we speak to change the call to action text from proceed to checkout to pay by card PayPal. And we're going to see if there's an uplifting conversion as a result of that. But it's just a really interesting observation that I found. There's almost like a Shopify effect of a standard checkout. That if they don't see it, they assume we don't take those payment methods. Yeah, all of that flexible like you can change all of that and you can turn up because the big one that most people flag that is a shopify trend is the express payment options at the top of the first step of the checkout but all of that can be removed as well um, okay. so in terms of so next question for me so in terms of kind of advice for small businesses i think you kind of sit um in between kind of e-com and marketing um 
for teams that have got or people that have got limited resources, where would you suggest people focus their time initially when they launch kind of a new business? Um, okay, that's a really good question. So I would say if you've got a lot of SKUs, and a, a lot, I guess, is subjective. A lot could be 10, depending on what business you're in and how expensive things are. A lot could be a 1,000. Um, but if you have a really diverse portfolio of products, digital, physical, otherwise, it really pays dividends to invest in your taxonomy structure um, and, and to allow people to shop and browse as they want to. So, you know, for example, we could have just gone down the route of building really simple top-level categories, shampoo, conditioner, leave-in, styling, and that's it. Let everyone go wild. The, cha- the challenges with that is, one, as we've kind of opened up before, there's a real hobbyist culture in the world of, of Afro hair care where people know exactly what they want. Um, and more so, they know what they want, especially when they're coming to me. It's very much end of funnel. So they've already done the research, read the blogs, looked at the YouTube tutorials, engaged with influencers, digested the content, and they're coming to me as the final step. So people already know what they want. So if I kept really shallow inventory, shampoo, shampoo what? Like don't want a cleansing shampoo, a conditioning shampoo, clarifying shampoo, shampoo for particular hair types, hair porosities, dyed colour hair. So there's so many different options that we have available as categories. And that just means that if people know exactly what they want, or if people don't know what they want, there is an experience for everybody. And that really, I think, has paid dividends in allowing us to build really created um, landing pages, experiences, personalised landing pages for ads, um, and really kind of building a facet navigation that allows people to find whatever they want. So I would say, you know, that is the pillar of e-commerce and getting that right really has paid dividends for us. And anyone who is in that space, especially when you think about uh, things that are very granular. So one client I have is in the world of remote control cars, parts, um, and again, super hobbyist environment, but there's so much scope, batteries, certain screw sizes, all these parameters of, of, um, of specification that we've, we've doubled down on it. We've been in a situation where we started to build this experience while competitors were just saying parts for brand X or parts for these types of cars. It's good, but it's not good enough. Um, and that's where we probably would, would, would advise that people invest the most amount of their time at the beginning. And related to that is uh, the, the classic struggle if you're, yeah, you're running things on your own or you're a very small team is how to scale and what to use. I'd uh, love to do a parting question, which is beyond WooCommerce, what technology and tools do you use to help you, whether it's through marketing, merchandising, all those little things that help make life better and help you improve the customer experience? Yeah, that's brilliant. So one thing I fell upon, actually, completely by coincidence, is a is a uh, an automation platform called Integromat. Um, and it's, it, I think a lot of people go to Zapier. It's like the, the household brand for automation, which is great. Zapier is great. But when I tried it, it was an absolute nightmare because I had a really specialist thing I wanted to do. Um, and that's the quirks of WooCommerce, isn't it? Like sometimes you have a plugin, sometimes you don't. And even if you have a plugin, there's no guarantee it's going to work with your flavorful version of, of WooCommerce. Um, so we use Integromat, and Integromat handles a lot of behavior-based automation. It handles, handles all of our integration with our 3PL. Um, it allows us to build uh, funnels for our customer service. That makes things easier and asking for reviews. Um, but equally, we have granular control over it. And as you can probably tell, I'm a control freak, stuff like this. So I don't want to necessarily use the native Clavio plugin to say, 
when seven days has passed to send an email asking for feedback. I would love to be in a situation where actually I've got a funnel where I can ask people personally, although it's automated as the founder and, and kind of, you know, um, the face of the brand, if you like. Um, I hope you're happy with the order. If you've got any issues, please feel free to email me personally on this email address. And then after that, ask for a review. And that means we're in a situation where we can deal with any gripes or grievances before we then make it public and then we're in a situation where we've got negative situations. Um, or even been in a situation where people are looking for particular products and we can't find them. We, we stop, you know, 300-ish products, but there's there's probably thousands more we could stop. And realistically, we don't have the capacity to, to, to stop any more than maybe 500. Um, so that's one thing, a huge amount of automation. For recommendations, um, we use, I've kind of used my contacts here, but we use... Um, a bespoke version of uh, a DeFinder recommendation engine. Um, and it's great. It, it's For what it is, it's brilliant. Um, and then on top of that, we use Clerk for our homepage personalization and we use Clavio for email. Uh, so a big thumbs up to, to the guys over there. Um, and lots of kind of off-the-shelf stuff, but what really kind of brings it together and makes it personable and powerful is the Integra map integration we use to make everything autonomous. And that means you're in a situation, because I'm a, I'm a one-man team, basically. I use a bunch of freelancers for bits and pieces, but it's me as a side project on top of my consulting business. So I'm not in a situation where I can invest five days a week into this. So from the off, I had to make sure it was scalable without me having to invest more and more and more time. Uh, and Integromat's been a, a huge help. Interesting. Not come across that. I've come across plenty of people who have used Zapier, uh, things like Ift, or use native platform um, capabilities for creating workflows, but not come across Integromat. So that's a new one to look at. Thank you. No problem. So many no tools, problem. so little time. <laughs> exactly. Tell me about it. Yeah. Luke, look, we, that's covered all the key questions. Want to really appreciate you coming on. I've found that uh, very interesting. I like the kind of dual split between the the themes on this episode as well so um if anybody wants to learn more about i guess if it, people are interested in afrodrops and the products or they're interested in hearing about the, the journey like how do they reach out yeah so um just bang afrodrops into your browser um you'll be able to, to come across what uh, where we are um you can reach out to me just google luke carthy or lucecarthy.com and we can we can have a chat about that um and if anyone who's listening to this who's in the world of of, of afrocentric hair care um whether you are uh, an ambassador, an influencer, someone who buys it, want to ask questions, like reach out. We all started somewhere. I was at the age of 23 before I knew how to properly take care of my hair. So there is absolutely no shame in, in because when you don't have access to the products, you just you pick what you got on the shelf, right? So, um, you know, my point is if anyone's hearing this and they want links, resources, advice, then then reach out. And you can find everything on the Afrodots website or reach out to me on lukecarty.com. I'll be happy to help amazing um yeah thanks for taking the time and thanks everyone as always for listening keep an ear open for the next episode as they say we drop them uh, every tuesday and please do subscribe if you haven't already or give us a rating on apple spotify or youtube uh, we really do appreciate it catch you all next week for more information on this topic head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts to discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.